You are listening to the weekend message of Crossroads Church North Campus. Crossroads exists to make much of Jesus, and we do this by following in the way of Jesus and making disciples who love God and love others. To find out more about Crossroads, go to crossroadslive.com. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace. And what we must again recognize is that this work of, of reconciliation, it's the work of God. He is the initiator. He is the one that brings about the peace. He is the one that brings about the sacrifice on his own behalf. It's he who goes to the cross for us. And knowing this, elevating our thinking to this, Paul is reminding both the Colossian church and us that there is nothing better than Jesus. We are in Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you... Who, were, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Thank you. You may be seated. There's a, a moment that I, uh, I return to often in the life of Jesus. Uh, it's where he's walking with his disciples, and they're making their way into the region of Caesarea Philippi. And in Caesarea Philippi, there's, there's a number of sites that were just kind of these pagan, ritualistic sites. It's not the place that a rabbi would normally go to with his students in tow uh, to teach them a lesson. But, but what I love about the life of Jesus is that if you follow along in any of the biographies of his life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that Jesus was just fine to show up in places that most people expected him to stay out of. And he was just fine to interact with people that most people would say, you, you shouldn't be associating yourself with. But in this particular moment, as they're walking along, as he would often do, he would be teaching them. He would be having a time of just conversation, and he began asking questions, and the first question he started off with is, is who, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Which is an easier question, I think, for us to answer. We're a lot more comfortable answering on somebody else's behalf than on our own behalf, because then we've got to stand behind it. And so I think what Jesus was doing here was brilliant. Of who do you, who do you think people are saying I am? But eventually, he got to the heart of the question. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? See, this question, I believe, is the question that stands before each of us. Who do we say that Jesus is? 
Because who we understand him to be really shapes who we are in him. There was a study that was done in 2020. And they were given, a, the, the people who were participating in this study, they were given a series of statements to say whether they strongly agreed with, somewhat agreed with, uh, didn't really care, disagreed with, you know, kind of going through the, the whole thing. And, and one of the statements that they were given was, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Right? Distinguishing that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now, in this study, given to kind of all walks of life, 52% of people agreed with that statement. Now, I heard that, and I was like, okay. So there's more people that are seeing that there's something different about Jesus, uh, and that there's something there, but still, the majority, you know, 52% are saying, like, he's a great teacher, but that whole divine stuff, I don't, I don't really buy. What I did find surprising was that in the midst of this study, they asked those who considered themselves evangelicals, people who read the word, uh, went to church. And what they found was that 30% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. Meaning 30% of people who show up into church were saying, ah, he's a good teacher. I don't think he's God. Right? Somebody asked me in between services when we were talking about this, they said, so do you know which which is a 30% in our church? You know? <laughs> I said, of course I do. And I do. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But what this reminds us of is that there's still this question as to who Jesus really is. And our understanding of Jesus shapes the way in which we're willing to follow after him, the, the way in which we're willing to entrust ourselves to him. And we may think, well, why does this matter? We're in church. Everyone should just agree with this. But what we're finding is more and more people don't. That people like this idea of Jesus as a good moral teacher. That there's things that we can all kind of pick and choose from. That we like what he has to say when we pick the parts that we like that he says. But the problem with this is that if Jesus is just a good moral teacher... If he's just someone that we go to uh, for, for some sound advice... Well, then our faith is going to be entrusting ourselves to follow that sound advice, meaning that it suddenly comes back on to us to live that good moral life that he's pointing us to. Now, on one hand, we would say, isn't it, isn't it a good thing to live a good moral life, you know, to, to make kind decisions towards others? And we could all say yes, but at the same time, if that becomes our end of just being a good person, then what's our real aim? Just to be morally superior to those around us? Or are we just trying to live in such a way that we can tip the scales of life in our favor? Or are we just trying to build up enough karma because if you do good things, good things will come back to you. That's the way the universe works. But where this all kind of just starts to unravel is what happens when we, we fail? What happens when we can't live up to the standard that we even create for ourselves, that we can't follow through with, that we find it harder and harder when we just don't have the strength anymore, or we just don't feel like we're strong enough, or life just simply implodes? See, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter to the Colossians, he also wrote another letter to another church, and in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he said, if, if Christ has not been raised, meaning if Christ is not uh, revived from the dead, he's not resurrected, he's not alive, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. See, if Jesus is just a good teacher, but he's just a man, then he's still in that grave and death has not been defeated. 
There's been no reconciliation for our sins. There's been nothing to create peace on, on, that, on our behalf. And therefore, we are just striving in our own strength to make sense of all this. But Paul, in this letter that he's writing to the Colossians, he started out by, by bringing us through the, the gates of grace and peace. And then he, there was this thanksgiving. And then last week we saw this prayer, which I hope you are working on memorizing. I had someone stop by the office this week. And they were like, hey, I just want to run through my verse with you. And I was like, I love you. And they're like, now how are you doing? I was like, how dare you? you know? <laughs> but let's get that, that prayer in our, in our hearts and in our minds so that we can begin to live that out. But Paul's going to move now from, from this prayer of, of, of thanksgiving and kind of this where we should be and what does it look like to live a life worthy of, of walking in, in God, fully pleasing to him. And now he's going to start to tell us very clearly just who Jesus is. He's going to raise whatever lowly thoughts we may have and he's going to begin to elevate them up through the rafters and into the stratosphere. Because what we will continue to discover is that our understanding of who Jesus is is central to our understanding of who we are in him. And Paul wants to be very clear. Jesus is not just a nice guy from Nazareth. He doesn't just give some great TED Talks now and again. He's not looking for you to like and subscribe to his channel. No, that's not who he is. Jesus has reshaped all of human history. He was there at creation. And he is the cause of the new creation that is possible for us. So who is he? Who is he to you? The answer to that question matters. And the passage that we look at this morning has often been called the hymn of Jesus. Some believe that this section was actually an early church creed that people had memorized, that Paul was just lifting something that people already knew just to elevate our view of who Jesus is so that we'd have a right understanding, a right doctrine and theology to live that out in our lives. And as we go through this, I'm going to look at this song of Jesus because this melody that sings about him also sings about who we are in him. And it's going to be important for us to understand as we move forward. So before we begin looking at this passage, let me just pray for us and then we'll jump in. Oh, Father, I just thank you for your word. And Lord, this passage before us, I, I pray that you, would, uh, that you would elevate our view of you. God, sometimes we limit who you are with our understanding. Sometimes we... Uh, we think it's still on, up to us, that it's still on our shoulders, and yet you, you show us something different, something greater, something grander. And so, Lord, would you help us to truly understand just how magnificent you are? Would we see the grandeur of your glory, and would it ignite us again to live differently? Not just when we're with you for all of eternity, but here and now as we live out your kingdom under your rule and reign. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've got, already got your Bible out from reading, we're going to be in Colossians 1.15 is where we're going to start. 
If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles in the seats right in front of you. You can feel free to grab one of those or follow along in your device. I know I say this all the time, but it's really helpful to be looking at something in front of you. It's one of the reasons, if you ever wonder, like, why don't they put all the scriptures up on the screen? Because I want you in your Bible. I want you in what's in front of you as we go along. When we jump to other passages, I'll jump there for you. We'll put that on the screen. But I want you following along so you can see it for yourself. So in Colossians 1.15, it says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul, as he walks through this, he's going to give us, he's going to give four statements of who Jesus is. He is, and he begins here with, he is the image. The Greek word there is icon. Anyone remember the use of icon? Remember, you're an icon. You were made in the image of God. We talked about this around Christmas time, that you are an icon, an image bearer of God, that you're a representative of him. And here, this is the same thing. It's saying he is the image, the the, the manifestation of the invisible God. And Paul is using this, these words intentionally. He's taking us back to the original creation story with this, this wording. He's saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and he is the, the firstborn of all creation. As one theologian says it, he says, to say that Jesus is the image of God is to say that in him the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed. If you want to know what God looks like in flesh, look to Jesus. That's, that's who he is revealing. John 1.18 reminds us, the apostle, the beloved disciple of Jesus says this, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. Jesus has revealed who the Father is. He's revealed just who God is. And what's more, Jesus isn't just revealing who God is. Jesus is is God, a member of the Trinity. He's God in in the frame of humanity. Jesus has made the invisible visible. But not only is he the image of the invisible God, it says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn over all creation. Now, this is where some divergent thought comes into place. This is where sometimes people take this and go, oh, firstborn, So, so Jesus was created. Jehovah's Witness, they often take this passage and they say, see, he's not God, he was created, he was just the first of creation. But this term, firstborn, right? All of you firstborn people in here, let me see your hands if you're firstborn. You're so smug, so arrogant. As third in line, I know who you are. Using your power against me. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding, I love firstborns too. But this phrase, firstborn, it's not just like, oh, uh, it, it was just, you know, you came first. Actually, it has a designated title of priority to it. And what do I mean by that? Well, in the Psalms, they're, they're speaking over David at one point. In Psalm 89, 27, and this is speaking of David, and it says, I will make him the firstborn. Was David the firstborn in his family? No. No, he wasn't. He was not the firstborn. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. What this psalm is speaking of David is he now has a position that is before all things. Not that suddenly now he's been recreated as the firstborn. No, he he has a position that is before all things, that he is preeminent. This is what is being spoken of here, of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That means he is over all creation, that he is first in line. 
And this hymn, this song of Jesus, continues to explain this very fact. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. And now it's going to explain it a little bit. Verse 16, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. He is over all. He is all in all. And again, John, the beloved disciple who walked with Jesus on this earth, he describes Jesus this way in the very opening of his, his account of Jesus' life. John 1, 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word, in the beginning. Oh, that's where it is. There's a typo there. It should be John 1, 1 through 3. If you're taking notes, don't write John 1, 18. You'll be confused. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Word was God. Again, what's he saying? Jesus was at the beginning. Jesus was with God. Jesus is God. I know when we start talking around the Trinity, we often go, it's the beauty of God's relation between himself, the triune God, the unified being of God who is represented in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here he's saying Jesus is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So it's just reinforcing what Paul's saying to us here. For by him all things were created. All things. We could, we could say all things. What Paul means there is the totality of all things. Everything. There is nothing that he is not over. This list that we're given here, going back to verse 16 in Colossians, where it says uh, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And there's this, that list of, of thrones and dominions and rulers, authorities. Anyone who's in a position of power is being represented here. And what Paul is making sure that we understand is that Jesus is superior to all of them. There is no one who is more powerful than him. He is the one who is over all things. Every throne, every uh, political uh, person who holds any kind of position, does not have more power than Jesus. Jesus is over all of them. He's over everything, the, the visible and the invisible. That means the seen and the unseen realm. Now, I know when we start talking around the unseen realm, people start to get a little weirded out. But there, there is a very real enemy that is working in opposition to the kingdom of God. There's a very real enemy that loves to work underneath the surface so we doubt that he is even there, but he is at work. And he manifests himself in different ways through the demonic, through oppression, through spiritual warfare. And some of you in this room, you've experienced that. You've experienced a deep darkness that you can't explain other than the oppression of the enemy. Some of you have opened yourself up to that by pursuing things within the occult, going down different practices that have allowed evil into your life or chasing after false beliefs. But here's what I want you to know. While there is a very real enemy that is in pursuit of us, he is not powerful enough to overcome Jesus. That if you stand in Jesus, you stand in victory over the darkness. 
Remember, we looked at this last week. He transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. That means we are in the rule and reign of Jesus, that he is our king. He is over us. That means that the enemy cannot come against us. Why? By our own strength? No, through the strength and the power and the authority of Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. So if any of you in the midst of this moment are experiencing darkness, you're experiencing oppression, the enemy is coming after you. May you know that Jesus has come to set you free, to break those chains. Don't go back as a slave any longer, for you are not a slave of the power of darkness. No, you are part of the kingdom of the beloved son, and you stand in light, and you stand in his strength, so be free within him and cling to him. For Jesus is over all things. What's more is he's made new creation possible in and through his very being. But again, to, to live this, to step into that truth and to walk in that truth, not just to know it, but to live it in our lives, we have to understand the totality of who Jesus is. That's why I love the way in which the author of Hebrews begins the letter in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, it says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. But Jesus is heir of all things. He's over all things. He is the creator through whom all things were created. When we look back at verse 16 in Colossians, what's that last part say? All things were created through him and for him, meaning that all things that were brought into existence exist to bring him glory, to point to his preeminence, his power, his superiority, his, his ability to be over all. See, my hope is that as we walk through these words of Paul, the roof of whatever construct you've placed over Jesus, limiting him in scope, is being dismantled as you begin to, to grasp the full weight of his glory. Continuing on, verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This, again, just begins to restate what we've been looking at. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things, both within time and within position. There was never a time when Jesus was not. He has always been. There was never a time when Jesus was not. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But he is also before all things in terms of position, that no one stands in the same position that he does, that he is over all things. And in him, all things, the totality of everything hinges and holds together meaning that on him hangs the balance of creation. On him hangs the very unity of the church. And what do I mean by that? We're going to explore that more with what Paul says next, but all things hold together. He unites all things. He's going to speak later that he's reconciling all things to him, that Jesus is the very center of everything. Too often in our lives, we like to place ourselves as the center of the story. Not to just squash your self-esteem. God made you, he loves you, but he's in the middle and he's supreme. We exist for, for him and for his glory and we get to delight in what he's calling us into. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He keeps us from plunging into that domain of darkness, into the chaos of the fallen world. He is the light that shines through the cracks, even in the darkest of nights. And what we see is Paul is calling this out, and he's saying he is over everything. He was before all things in creation, and now he's going to bring it down to a bit more specific and say, and this is who he is within the church. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the body, the church. If you've been reading along with us in our reading plan, we, this last week we were in the book of Ephesians. And my hope is that as you were reading through Ephesians this week, you started to notice a lot of parallels to Colossians. Like a lot of the themes were woven throughout the two of them. If you hold those two letters up together, there's a lot of ideas that are expressed through both of those with just a slight difference because we think that when Paul was writing those, he was writing on different occasions, but he had a lot of the same thoughts going through his head that he was trying to make known to these, these churches. And we see that in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, he says, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. So what Paul is saying here in Colossians, what he was saying there in Ephesians, is that Jesus is the head of the church. That Jesus is the great shepherd over all of us. My role as pastor and shepherd of this church is to serve as the under-shepherd to the great shepherd, to point us to him in all things. In the same way as we follow after Jesus, we get to point to him in all things, for he is the great shepherd of our souls. Just as all creation is for him, so is the church. And we are his body. And we move and we function through our head, through Jesus. And what we find is that we're this beautiful uh, diversity of people and gifts that he has given us. But what does Romans 12, 4 and 5 remind us? For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one in body and individually members of one another. We're united under him. We can gather in this place with all of our prior history, with all of our different worldviews, and those start to collide as we begin to live under the lordship and the rule of Jesus in our lives, and that's what unites us together, that he is the head. But what we will soon discover is that a, a headless body is simply a zombie with no life. In the same way, a, a Christless church is in danger of living within its own strength. Where we pretend that it's just all on us and that we've just got to make things better, what we start to form then is just simply a community center with no real power. We can do some good, but it's not going to have the lasting effect of bringing people to the life-saving message of Jesus, allowing him to transform them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, being filled and empowered by the very spirit of God coursing through them. If we are absent of that, then we are absent of life. So may we never be a church that is Christless in function or in position. That's why we always say we exist to make much of Jesus because that's our aim, to point to him. And what Paul is doing in this moment as he's starting this letter, he's like, let me just remind you who he is. 
Let me just tell you how magnificent, how grand, how incredible, how wonderful he is, that this is the head of our church. This is the head of our gathering. And and let me just say this, because I, I have more and more conversations, I feel like, all the time. Whereas people either coming into our church or or they're finding their way in church and figuring things out. It doesn't take long. It takes maybe one conversation to to get to church hurt. What I mean is past baggage from where you've been wounded by by the church, a place that was proclaiming Jesus. And and you've you've seen things that you can't unsee and you're you're frustrated and and, and you see that. And and I'm not minimizing any of that. I've, I've been through my own process of that. I've seen what happens. And not to make this so simplistic or to sound naive. But may you take such great hope that 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 abuse that you experienced, that pain, that hardship that you walked through, that was not a result of the head of the church, of Jesus. So while people have wounded you within the church, do not give up on your great shepherd because he has not given up on you. And he is with you. And he has come for you. So may we take hope that he is the one who is over all and he is the one in whom we find life. And Paul continues. He says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that he might have priority. Here again, Paul is just kind of walking us through things that he's he's already said, but repositioning them and, and reinforcing them telling us that Jesus is at the beginning in both time and in position. He is the arche. That Greek word means he is the ruler, the beginning, the creative initiative, the source. He is the first. It's also a word that's tied to our understanding of archetype. What he has done, he is making possible for us to step into and to live. For he is the start of life. He is where we begin our pursuit of life. He is the firstborn from the dead, meaning he is the first to resurrect a feat that all who follow in the footsteps of Jesus will experience as the promise of the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, sometimes people grab this passage and and they, they start thinking through, and I like the question, they're like, the firstborn from the dead. Wait, we just sang a song about Lazarus. Didn't Lazarus come back from the dead? That was before Jesus resurrected. Lazarus was resuscitated. He came back to life, but he eventually died again. We have no record that Lazarus just lived on. Jesus came back to life never to die again. He broke death. He conquered it on our behalf that in him we don't have to experience the ultimate spiritual death of separation from God for all of eternity. So here we see, once again, that Paul is pointing us to the preeminence, the priority That Jesus is first in all things. He is the conductor and creator of the new creation that is made possible by him, in him, and through him. And now he's going to explain that, right? Because he says he is, and then now he's going to be for, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, to take up residence, When we look at the narrative of Scripture, when we walk through, we see that God was present with his people in the very beginning. He walked with Adam and Eve. There was no separation from them. When rebellion entered into the world and they rebelled against God, they were removed from the garden, they were removed from the presence of God. 
But God, in his great pursuit of us and his people, he says, I want to dwell among you. I want to be with you. And so they had this mobile tent that would go with them as they were wandering. It was called a tabernacle. And the presence of God would come down, a pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke, a representation of God's presence among his people until that would become a more permanent structure in the temple where God's presence would reside as a, as a symbol of being with his people. We also see this foretaste of what was to come throughout the Hebrew scriptures where at times God would, it would pour his spirit out onto someone for a particular time in a particular place that they would have the very presence of God, the spirit of God moving within them. And then now, just as the author of Hebrews had told us that it was in these, these last days that he spoke through the prophets, but now he has revealed himself in his son who, who had the fullness of God dwelling in the tent of a human frame. I love how one theologian states that this theologian states that this fullness is God's spirit, his word, his wisdom, his glory. They're all perfectly displayed in Christ. Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Paul is going to really make sure we want to understand this. And so he's going to come back to this later in Colossians. In Colossians 2, 9 and 10, he's going to speak to this again. He's going to say, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So Paul is just pointing to the magnificence and the beauty of Jesus over and over again. I need you to understand this, is what he's telling us. I want to get your attention with this so you understand just how incredible he is. So what, what have we seen so far? How do we summarize this? Well, we, we've seen that he is, he is the invisible made visible. That's who Jesus is. He is the invisible made visible. He is God. He is God. Second thing we see is that he is first in all things. He is first in all things, in time and in position. He is over all things. Priority is to be given to him in everything. He is first in all things also seen that he is the great shepherd. He is the great shepherd. He is the head of the church. He is the one that is to, to lead the people of God, and he is the source of our strength, source of our life, that we are to look to him, that he is the one that leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, so that we have to fear no evil, for he is with us. Finally, he is the, the resurrection. He has been raised to life. He is the firstborn among the dead, and in doing so, he has now made it possible for us to be raised to life in him. What Paul is making sure we're clear on is that there is nothing lacking in Jesus. There is nothing lacking in Christ. He is all in all, but what is more is that the supreme one, the preeminent, the firstborn, the creator of all things, the one who dwelt in human form, He's come with a purpose. He's come with, with, with a mission of reconciliation. What was once broken, he is now going to bring together. That's why in verse 20 it says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So just jumping back to verse 19 to get a full running start there, it says, For in him, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
And here I believe we've reached the, the crescendo of the hymn of Jesus, the song of Jesus. He who is supreme in all things is working to reconcile all things to himself. And how is he going to accomplish that? By making peace by his own blood on the cross. This is the magnificence of Jesus. He is not only uh, the, the end, but he is the means. He is both the answer and the solution to the problem that plagues humanity. His melody is the melody of reconciliation, bringing all things to himself, making all things right. Romans 8.22, Paul is speaking of this, this rupture within all of creation. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That all of creation is groaning and longing to be restored to what it once was when God had brought forth all things into existence. And so through Jesus, he has come to reconcile to himself all things. Reconcile. The word that's used here for, for reconcile is, is unique. It's only used three times. Once here in verse 120, again in verse 122, and then in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in 2.16. And some think that Paul's taken this word in particular and he's kind of crafted it for his own ends and means to point to the truth that it's God who is the initiator of this reconciliation. Because to reconcile means to, to bring peace where once the uh, relationship was estranged and blown apart, it has now been brought together. It's a change in status of relationship. When we think of uh, the parable of the lost son in Luke 15, we see a kid who, who kind of kicks against his father, goes out to do his own thing, lives it up as much as he can, gets to this moment where he realizes, like, this is not working for me. This isn't going very well. But I bet you if I went back and served my dad, I'd have a better life than I currently have right now. And what I love about this story and this parable is that the father is not just like standing in judgment as the son comes and be like, told you so. No, what we see is that the father is watching the horizon for his son to return. And when the son starts to make his way and the father sees the shadow of his son walking towards him, what does he do? He grabs his, his skirt, he lifts up his, his kind of his long robe, and he runs to his son. And when he runs to his son, he gives him a robe, he gives him a ring, he gives him new slippers. He says, you are my son. And then he's describing everyone. We have to have a party because this son of mine was dead, but now he is alive. This is the beauty of what Paul is pointing to us in this moment, the reconciliation that comes through Christ where once we were estranged from him, we're now brought together because of him. Athanasius once said, the incarnation is reconciliation. And I love this phrase that, that Jesus came, he took on the, the human frame that he might reconcile us to him. Chaos overcome by Christ. And what we must again recognize is that this work of, of reconciliation, it's the work of God. He is the initiator. He is the one that brings about the peace. He is the one that brings about the sacrifice on his own behalf. It's he who goes to the cross for us. And knowing this, elevating our thinking to this, Paul is reminding both the Colossian church and us 
that there is nothing better than Jesus. See, there was a drift that was leaking into this Colossian church, a a way that was taking them away from an understanding of Jesus that pointed to him as the the source of all things and and the one who who was truly life. And Paul's saying, let me just bring you back to the basics. Let me just remind you of who Jesus is. That there's no new life without the giver of life. That there's no reconciliation without the incarnation. There's no peace apart from the payment of Christ. And so Paul concludes. And he he moves this, this hymn, this song of Jesus, and he moves from him to us, to you and I. There's a shift. Verse 21. And you. Suddenly we're on the spot now. It's been all Jesus, and now he's bringing it back to us. I was on a Zoom call earlier this, this week, and it was a video conference with a number of different people. And I had opted to, you know, not have my video live, which uh, all of you students who lived through Zoom classes know that when you don't have your video live, it means you're doing whatever you want to do while you're pretending to listen to the person on the other end of the line. Uh, and so I was, I was listening to the conversation that was happening and just kind of taking that in. Um, and, but all of a sudden, he, the, the, the guy who was speaking, he's like, and, and I just real quick, Andrew, I just want to speak to you. Whew, all of a sudden, my heart raced, and I was like, whoosh, like jumping back to my computer, like, like trying to find where to turn the video back on. And then I realized in that split second that he was like, Andrew, and then he said a different last name. And I was like, whew, went back to doing my own thing and, you know, whatever I was doing. But for a moment, I thought I was on. And that panic, that, that little like, whew, that raise, I think that's what Paul's looking for in this moment. Listen, our attention has been on Jesus. And it's easy to stay there. Man, he's great. He's great. He's great. But, but what is that to you? What does that mean to you? How does that change who you are? How does that affect you? And so now in verse 21, he says, and you, and you, you're not getting out of this. And you. Let me tell you about you and how this affects you. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, alienated, estranged, apart from God, hostile in mind towards him, enemies of him, doing evil deeds. Now, each of us has experienced moments in our life that we hope nobody else knows about or sees. There are words or there are actions that we have contributed to, that we are ashamed of, that we carry, that even right now as I say that, I know some of you, you're just flashing through this like Rolodex in your mind of like, yep, 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 yep. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, verse 22, he has now reconciled, he's now made peace in his body of flesh by his death, he's paid for it, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So all those things that fly through our mind, yeah, I was alienated, I was hostile, I was doing evil things. Christ has reconciled you, and now when God sees you, if you've, tr- you've chosen to trust in Jesus, if you've placed your trust in him, saying, I'm gonna follow after you, I'm gonna submit to you, you are the Lord of my life. You are the king over every area of my life, then you are now holy and blameless 
and above reproach before him because of the righteousness of Jesus. Now, I know in saying that, some of you, you have too long a memory. You can't get the past out of your head, and you're like, no, 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 I don't know that he can overcome this. That's what Paul is telling us. Don't forget how great he is. He is this magnificent. He's over everything, and all the things that you carry in, he takes and you are washed, and you are clean, and you are sanctified by the blood of Jesus, and you are free. That no longer defines you. You now have new life in him. This is the offer before each of us in Jesus. But Paul's not done. There's this one other sneaky word that he throws in that feels really loaded. And that's in verse 23. He says, if... So, and you, you once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He's now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if, and you're like, oh, here's the catch. Here's the fine print. It does all come back to me. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. See, Paul is reminding the church in this moment that this Jesus is for you. This Jesus offers freedom for you. This Jesus offers life for you. He says, if you continue, that word continue there has the same root of when Jesus says, abide in me, that you remain in me. If you continue, if you remain in him, if you remain in trusting in Jesus, Stable and steadfast. That idea of being stable and steadfast, don't we all want to feel stable and steadfast? And so many of us feel like that's just like out of reach. But in him, we can hold stable and steadfast to a secure anchor of our soul. And Paul is saying, if you continue, if you remain in him, if you trust in him, stable and steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel, the good news of Jesus that you've heard. But the question is, why why would this church want to shift from this hope? See, when we hear this, we're like, Jesus is awesome. What he has to offer us is incredible. So why would we turn from him? Why would, why would this church in Colossae, why would they not continue forward? Right? It's the same question we ask ourselves. Why do we, we drift? Why are we one minute so on fire and then the next minute we're like, ah, I don't know. Because I think herein lies the danger and the challenge that's in Colossians and before us. Will we continue in faith, stable and steadfast? Or will we be uh, tossed about by the latest news, the latest person, the latest elected official, the latest speech? Will we shift our hope on things that cannot maintain our hope? And Paul is saying, don't. Don't waste your time. Continue to look to Jesus. He is preeminent in all things. He's the creator of all things. He is the resurrection. He is the life. He has reconciled you by his blood that you may have life and freedom in him. But the question still stands before us. Do we believe that he is the image of the invisible God? Do we believe that he's first in all things? Do we believe that he is the head of the church, that he's the great shepherd holding all things together? Do we believe that he is the resurrection? Do we believe that he is all in all? 
I want to throw those four statements back up uh, that we looked at, that Paul declares. And I just have uh, some questions for you to think through. If he is the invisible made visible, if he is God, what's your response to him? You don't have to answer that right now. I just want to encourage you to think, if, if he really is, all these things that Paul is listing up, if that's really him, what's our response to him? What's our response to him? Again, he's the first in all things. If he is first in all things, are you giving him your first in all things? If he's truly priority in all things, are we treating him as priority in all things? Or do we get to him when we can? Questions I just encourage you to sit with. As we think about who is Jesus to you, this starts to flesh out. Do we really believe this? Is this taking root in us? Is it changing who we are as his people? If he is the great shepherd, if he is the great shepherd of your soul, are you allowing him to lead you? Are you allowing him to, to lead you to, to still waters, green pastures? Are you still resisting him, and why? And I'm not going to give you answers to these. I want you to sit and think through this. Finally, he is the resurrection. And if he is the resurrection, where do you need to allow him to bring new life to you? If he is the resurrection and you are currently saying this is a dead end and there's no possibility, where do you need him to move in your life right now? See, when Jesus was walking with his disciples and he first asked them, who do people say I am? That's an easier question to answer than when it comes to, but who do you say Jesus is? And that question is one we all have to answer at some point. The song of Jesus that Paul speaks to here reminds us of who he is and who we are in him. That when we say yes to Jesus, when we trust in him for who he is, we are saying yes to reconciliation, to peace, to restoration. See, the song of Jesus is invitation to life with him to life for him, and to life in him. So my question for all of us is, who do you say he is? You pray with me. Father, as we as we hear your words, Lord, I pray that they wouldn't just go away in this moment. It's easy for us to get on to the next thing and to not sit with, with questions or moments that make us uncomfortable of who do we really say you are? Lord, I pray that we would wrestle with that, that you would you would speak to us, that your spirit would convict where we need conviction, enliven where we need to be enlivened. And Father, I, I pray that anyone in this room who is yet to step into life with you, 
that they would answer that question of who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. He's the Savior, my Savior. He's rescued and he is redeemed. And by placing my trust in him, I have new life with him and for him and in him. So Father, this week as we go about and we, we talk with you and we wrestle through life with you, would you reveal to us in those places that we need to give over to you, that we need to elevate our eyes to remember just how magnificent you are, that you truly are over all. But God, that wouldn't be something that we just simply say, but it would be something that we, we live and we, we trust and we hold to not shifting our hope to anything less, but keeping our lives fixed upon you in everything. Jesus, we thank you that you have come and that by your blood on the cross we have been reconciled, that we have peace with God. We thank you for this. We praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we thank you for the truth of that, that it's you who's brought us back to life. That it's through your grace, through your mercy, through your reconciliation that we have peace with you. May we live that truth this week, this day. And may we give glory to you in all things. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, be before you go, just a couple of things really quick. We, uh, as a church, I know Ryan already s spoke to this, but I want to encourage you to take one of these bottles. Because we as a church, we, we stand with life. And what we see in our society and kind of the casual way in which uh, the unborn don't have a voice, we want to look for ways to come alongside that, to stand and to, to speak. But also, when you point to a problem, you better be part of the solution. And what I love in, in partnering with Living Well, and it's why we do, uh, is because they do this so well. They give real options, but they don't just say, we hope you figure this out. They walk alongside uh, mothers who choose to, to carry their, their child, to bring that life into this world. And, and through all the complications that come with that, they're not left on their own. And so we as a church, we, we stand with that. We want to be a people who say, yes, we're going to come alongside because we see the Creator's thumbprint on each and every child. So I'd encourage you to grab one of these bottles, to, to just fill it with whatever spare change you have throughout the, the next few weeks and to bring that back as just a way of supporting the good work that is being done. But as we leave from here today, um, may you know, that he who is the one who made the invisible visible, that he who is first in all things, the great shepherd, the one who is the resurrection and the life, that in him you have reconciliation through his blood on the cross. May you know this truth. May you live this truth. And as you leave from here, may you experience his grace and know his peace. God bless you. And we'll see you on Wednesday at the worship night.